Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everyone, welcome to the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Just a quick first reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your ratings really help us out and we'd love to hear from you. You can also reach us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at ProBookNerds or via email professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Today on the pod, I'm chatting with Big Library Read author Grace M. Cho about her book, Tastes Like War. Grace is a professor of sociology and anthropology at the College of Staten Island, CUNY. She is the author of Taste Like War and Haunting the Korean Diaspora, Shame, Secrecy, and the Forgotten War. If you're not familiar with Big Library Read, or BLR, it's our global ebook club that connects readers around the world with the same book at the same time without any wait lists or holds. For more information or to chat with other Big Library readers, you can visit biglibraryread.com. And now let's get into my interview with Grace M. Cho. Well, Grace, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. To start us off, could you please tell the listeners a bit about your memoir, Tastes Like War? Yeah, um, it's a book that sort of weaves together a lot of different narratives and ideas. But the, I guess the simplest way to describe it is that it's part food memoir and part sociological investigation into the social roots of my mother's schizophrenia. And, you know, I, I like to explain the book by giving larger context about my life, which does come up in the book. And that is when I was 15, it became apparent to me that my mom uh, was showing some symptoms of what Western psychiatry calls schizophrenia. And at that time, I really had no, uh, no resources to help her. I was met with denials in my family. I went to the local community mental health care center, and they basically turned me away, said there was nothing that anyone could do for her. And I, I look back at that moment as sort of the moment that I began to develop this anger um, that was a driving force in my life to investigate, you know, investigated all of these questions about why this happened to my mom. Because at the time in the 1980s, the thinking was that schizophrenia and other mental illnesses were purely biological, genetic, and that there were no social causes. And so I've sort of spent my whole adult life trying to understand the social causes that are both, you know, specific to my mom's history and those that are larger societal forces. Um, and so that sent me on a path of research and writing. Um, I wrote a, my first book as more of an academic book, looking at um, my mom's history in Korea and you know all the things that we are not allowed to know about the Korean War and US imperialism. And when that book was in production, I was really excited to show it to my mom 
she suddenly died. And all of these memories of her before she had schizophrenia came back to me. And so that also was sort of the kernel of Taste Like War that I also wanted to, um, you know, reanimate that mother that I had lost as a child and write her into the pages of this book. So, you know, aside from this being a, you know, an investigation about schizophrenia, it's also sort of a tribute to all of the different versions of my mother that I've had in my life. And, you know, I sort of frame it as at least three different mothers. And so there are these three sections in the book um, that, you know, try to bring th those different versions of my mom back to life. I really appreciate just the framing of that, of, of three different mothers, because I don't think we recognize often enough how, as we change and kind of grow throughout life, other people change with us or our right. perceptions and our realities kind of shift as well. So the mother of your childhood is going to feel different to you than the mother of your adolescence. But right. then when you add in that additional piece of environmental based mental illnesses, as your research started to show with how the impact of being displaced from your your home life, from your home culture, and then being othered in what's basically a, a new world that was promised to something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So those, you know, the people in our lives transform and we transform and then there's the dialectical relationship between the two so that your relationship is always changing as well. And so, you know, the relationship, so in a lot of ways, the book is about how my relationship with my mother continually transformed, right? It's it's a great reminder for all of us that that things are growing and changing and you can mm -hmm. always find beautiful memories in the past and still give yourself the opportunity to make new ones in the future, you know, even if it's in their memory like you did with this book. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. You know, there, aside from the beautiful memories, there are the very painful memories too, right? And I think that it's important to honor those as well because we live in a culture that tells us we should suppress them, right? And get over it, get over the past, um, don't talk about your trauma. And if you, you know, if you are grieving the loss of a loved one or a relationship or something like that, if it, if you're grieving for more than two weeks, you know, from a psychiatric perspective, you could just be, you know, clinically diagnosed as having depression, right? And so we, we tend to pathologize these very normal human experiences. Following your first book's release or kind of like right near it, your mother passed, what inspired you to kind of craft her life and share this this story? Well, it was that all of these memories came back to me, which I think is very normal when you've lost someone. But what struck me was that I realized that I had forgotten those memories. I had forgotten that first mother because my adolescence, my young adulthood, and then later in my adult life, um, it was so dominated by a mother who was unwell and as well as my research into a very dark history. And so under the weight of all of those things, that first mother got lost. So that was my original inspiration was that the memories came back to me. I wrote them down because I didn't want to forget again. So it was almost a, a way of, you know, recovering something I had lost during my grief over her actual death. Um, and so when I first wrote them down, I didn't have any intention of writing a memoir. I just let them sit for a couple of years. And then I started to think about writing a memoir. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of 
inspirations behind it. One was that so much of my mother's life was as a shut-in um, or it was hiding something from the past that she and other people in my family were ashamed of, um, that I wanted her to be able to be seen fully, you know, as, as a fully complex human being. Um, and so it was, a, in a way, it was sort of a, a tribute to her. My friend Hosu, who's also a character in the book, after she read it, she said, this book is like a literary funeral for your mom because I never felt that she was fully recognized either in her life or after her death. And so it was sort of part of an unfinished project that I had with the first book that, you know, in the first book, she is a big inspiration and she's sort of like figuratively in that one, but it wasn't literally about her, right? And this one I wanted to really make about her. Of course, you started just with the intention of getting those memories down, remembering the things you had forgotten. How long would you say you worked on this as a memoir or just in total? How much time have you spent on Taste Like War? Oh, it, it took years to develop a full manuscript. Um, so I started writing, I started transforming some of those memories that I had originally written into pieces that are now chapters in the book in 2011. And then I think I finished a, a draft of it in 2018. So that's seven years that it took. Um, and, and it, you know, there were a lot of changes over that time period in how I was writing, how I was thinking about it, and ultimately how I put all these pieces together, because at one point I felt that they were not very coherent. Um, so then there was the work of making them fit together and trying to find some sort of, uh, consistency in the internal logic. I mean, it is a very fragmented and nonlinear book, um, but even if that's the choice that you're going to make, it still has to work within its own logic, right? Right. Still has to fall within its own structure, but it it really does put you in the frame of mind of recollection. That's what I mm -hmm. think of it. Is, you absolutely have put kind of the memory in memoir that this is a bit that came to me. But I also think it's so fascinating to have to review some of that earlier work and go, I write incredibly differently now. I am, mm -hmm. a, I am a different writer. I have a different style and a different voice. Do you find yourself editing a lot of the earlier writing to yeah. kind of blend? Yeah, that early, those earlier pieces I actually had written in a memoir workshop because I had, you know, I don't have an MFA or a background in creative writing. I, my training is as an academic, but as an academic, I did this experimental writing and included some pieces of personal writings, a little bit of fictional writing into that. So it never was quite, you know, purely academic. It was creative academic writing. Um, so I, but I wanted to learn just the basics of memoir craft before launching into a project of memoir. Um, so those early pieces sort of reflect, um, you know, the conventional wisdom in memoir of how, of how to write, uh, you know, sort of focusing on a particular time and place. And, um, and when I came back to this, so actually what happened with the, the later pieces that I wrote, they were closer to my first book, you know, because I realized that my style is actually to fragment, to write non-linearly, because for me, that is, you know, you, you mentioned recollection. Yeah, it does mirror how memory works because our memories are never linear. Um, but I think particularly if your memory has been traumatized in some way, 
you're, you know, you're constantly having flashbacks or, you know, experiencing things out of time. Past is always in the present. Future is in the present, you know, in the, in the sense of anxiety that, you know, as I worked on it more and more, I was sort of developing and recognizing that this is sort of my signature. And so I went back to those earlier pieces that I wrote under the guidance of a teacher and of this conventional wisdom and changed them so that it fit my, actually what my personality is as a writer. And it makes sense. It's, it is always nice, especially with something this personal to still not be afraid to like accept the critique and look at it and go like, no, this, this needs to now update and reflect me because while this is a story about your mother, this is also you and your experience and and it has to kind of blend your life with your experience with her and I, yeah. I think it absolutely it absolutely does that yeah absolutely and I think that's a good lesson for you know for for writers that you don't always have to take the critique and incorporate it yeah when writing and sharing a memoir sharing grief pain what did you do after you were done writing for the day? Did you have a way to kind of, you know, feel it and then lift yourself up and go back to living? It's really hard. I mean, I still struggle with this because, you know, even when I'm not writing things that are as personal in, in the sense that it's not about someone I know personally, it's still personal when I, you know, for example, now I'm doing some research and writing about civilian massacres in, during the Korean War. And that feels very personal to me, even though I may not have known any of those people. Um, and it does, you know, I feel the pain, not just emotionally, but in my body, you know, like my back hurts, my neck hurts, a headache when I'm done writing. And so it does require some self-care afterwards. And yeah, so I can't go immediately from writing into something else that involves interacting with other human beings because I'm just not in a in a state to be able to do that. So I need some time to decompress by myself and then maybe I'll go for a walk. Um, there are times when I feel like I need a massage. I need somebody to really put their hands on me, take care of me and soothe that out of my body. Um, yeah, so those are some of the things I do after writing because it can really get into your head and, you know, and, and stay there in a way that's, that's not good. You know, like, you know, sometimes I invite these characters that I'm reading about and writing about into my, into my mind and my inner life. And I'm happy for them to stay there because it's enriching in a lot of ways, but there are other times when I feel like I, I need that space to myself and they need to, they need to go for for now. You've definitely got to be able to say like, okay, you are welcome right now, but when your time is up, get on out of there. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, of course, am nosy. What were some of your writing essentials and kind of the overall vibe for your space when you work, you know, either currently or, or in the past, yeah. any snacks and treats or <laughs> music or sounds? Yeah. I, uh, I get hungry so frequently because <laughs> I'm kind of a grazer. So I do bring a lot of snacks with me because, um, I need to not be interrupted because once I sort of get into a rhythm, it's very easy to break that. And then I have, you know, what if I start over, then it'll take me, it, usually it takes me like half an hour to warm up to be able to actually get into the rhythm of writing. Um, and so if there's an interruption, sometimes it means I'm done for the day. So yes, I bring up all the snacks and drinks that I need. I have to be in a place where no one is going to talk to me. <laughs> um, so, I mean, now I have a home office 
I, I didn't always have that. So, um, because my stepdaughter recently moved out of the house. So now her old room is my office. But before, when I was working on this book, I, uh, for some of the time I had an office, but for most of it, I didn't. So um, I would go to a coffee shop, even though that's not a room where I can close the door. It's a place where I can be anonymous. And, you know, I'm not going to have my kid asking me to help with something or, you know, no, no one is going to ask me anything personal or ask me to get up and do something for them. Um, so, so that's, that's sort of what I need to, to get my writing done. Right. No one's going to walk up and say, what are you thinking of for dinner tonight? Yeah, what do you feel exactly, like? <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> yeah. Now, kind of on that food vein, Taste Like War tells the story of your mother, her impact on your life, how you navigated the world with her support and how you learned a new navigation system without her. But it also shares the pain and importance of food. What are some of the ways that your thoughts on food have shifted over the years, over the course of working on Taste Like War? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the most important lessons I learned from my mom, and I, it, it didn't exactly sink in until I was writing it, is that you know, part of the story is about how I learned to listen to what she was craving. And, you know, I think that food can be a really powerful tool in building relationships and strengthening social bonds. Um, But you have to be able to listen to what the other person is craving. Um, And for my mom, it took a long time to draw that out because initially she didn't want me to cook for her. Um, And so when I first started cooking for her, I would cook the things that I was interested in cooking because I was also learning how to cook for myself at that time. And I was interesting, interested in exploring all these other cuisines. And I think it was sort of interesting to her for a moment, but then after a while, she said, cook me Korean food. And then we stayed with that from then on out for, for years with the Korean food. Um, and it made me understand how, how much longing she had for what that, food was able to provide for her emotionally and spiritually. And I couldn't believe that I had never considered that until she started to ask for it. And so I think especially for for immigrants or anybody who has been uprooted in some way, um, taste is a really powerful sense in bringing you back to, to those moments in the past. And so I learned both that some of those tastes were taking her back to traumatic moments that she didn't want to relive um, while others took her to a place of comfort and safety, right? And so the title of the book, Tastes Like War, that refers to when she tasted powdered milk that reminded her of the war because um, the U.S. military used to give out uh, food aid and within those packages, often, you know, boxes of powdered milk, which is foreign to a Korean palate. So it was introduced um, during the war. It is it is so interesting to think on the power of taste uh, connecting to memory. I also think a lot of, you know, how like uh, se- smells are some of our most powerfully based memories. And, and those two senses are hand in hand with cooking. Right. So uh, the idea of community, whether it is just with one person that you're trying to build that connection or deepen that bond, and, and the, once again, important reminder of just kind of listening and being present to who you're with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And to remember food as, you know, as a spiritual balm too, right? Absolutely. It is so much more than just 
energy uh you know just kind of like fuel right right (laughs) right I think there's a lot of days that I I turn to the like I just have to eat something because this body needs to run but then I think like okay well what kind of day was I having that day and it usually reflects based on that attitude toward like I just need something in there so I can get through this day Mm -hmm. but when it's the the thoughtful process and you can also kind of incorporate it as part of self-care taking that time to prep and and craft and create I I think we all could look at our recipe boxes a little more uh, thoughtfully every once in a while. Mm-hmm, definitely. Or to think about who you're sharing those meals with, right? Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. My name's Adam Sokol, and I'm the host of the Passions and Prologues podcast. Every week, best-selling authors like Jenny Jackson, Rebecca Mackay, Lisa Scottolini, or Brad Meltzer come on to my show to talk about, yes, their new books, but more importantly, the things that they're crazy passionate about. We've talked about the Muppets, powerlifting, traveling, gardening, home improvement, and so much more. We dig into why these things are their passions, how they inspire their writing, and where they came to fall in love with these random assorted things. Be sure to subscribe to the Passions and Prologues podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And check out evergreenpodcast.com to learn more. Now, do you have a favorite meal? I, it's probably miyakuk, which is um, Korean seaweed soup. So I wrote about it a little bit in Taste Like War. It is uh, something that you typically eat on your birthday. It's something that um, new mothers eat, uh, eat after giving birth because it's supposed to be healing and it's supposed to help produce milk. And my association with Miyakuk is that it's always been something that people have made for me during those moments when you need care or when you're being celebrated. And my mom would also often make it for me for breakfast when I was really little uh, about to go to school. And I I loved it. I mean, it tastes really delicious also. Um, But, you know, once I started cooking for my mom, when I made her Miyakuk for the first time, it brought back so many fond childhood memories of the two of us and um after she died I you know I had this moment when my friend's mother who they're both Korean was coming to visit and she said oh you need somebody to take care of you I'm going to make you some miyakuk and so that you know I associate it with her caring for me during my grief the same friend um cooked it for me after I gave birth to my child and because of the symbolism of it, it, I'd have to name that as my favorite dish. It's also really easy to make. Well, we love that too. I yeah. mean, all the beautiful memories and and feelings and associations aside, who doesn't love something that's also easy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I love that. I I crave a bit of that, you know, that kind of like, this is the thing you make when someone is celebrating, when someone is healing and I, I just think that's so beautiful. Oh, I was just thinking, you know, since you put it that way, in contrast to 
you know, American birthday treats, like the, the birthday cake is, it's delightful and delicious and I love it, but it's not something you want to eat when you're healing. And so, yeah, you just, you just made me realize that Miyako serves both of those purposes and how versatile it is. Now, are you on the quest to, do you have a meal that you're on the quest to prepare perfectly or anything you're really working on? Oh my, I, no, no, not at the moment. Um, just because the pandemic changed my relationship to food a bit that I don't want to cook as much as I used to, <laughs> you know, because I, I just got really sick of having to do every single meal at home for a whole family. Um, and so I, my associations with cooking started to become more around labor. Um, I'm just now starting to, you know, come back to cooking for pleasure. And um, yeah, I don't, I guess there's nothing that I'm thinking that I want to perfect. Although I, I, uh, so I stopped eating meat after my mom died and I really missed bulgogi. And so a couple months ago, I decided I'm going to try to figure out how to make vegan bulgogi. And um, it turned out really well. I don't know if it's perfect yet. So maybe that's the dish if I'm going to continue working on it to make it a little bit better. That sounds delightful. <laughs> Thinking on community and looking at your mother while writing and then your family, how did writing and the release of this book impact your own life and your own community? I mean, you've got your family at home now, you've got your husband and your, and your children. And, and what was it like to have this book go out into the world and you've got a unit at home? Yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was pretty amazing, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I had a book launch party. It was, it came out in May of 2021, you know, after having everything virtual, I had an in-person book launch party in an outdoor space. And so it was just this wonderful moment of celebration. And I was really happy to be able to share that with my child who's, who was seven at the time, um, because I think that most kids grow up not really understanding what their parents' lives are like, what they do. And he, he really loved it. Um, and he also has come on a, you know, to a couple of book events out, out, you know, out of town with me. Um, so I'm happy to be able to share this with him. And um, it, it allows us to have conversations about family history. You know, there are a lot of things that I think he's too young to fully understand, but there are some things that we talk about, like he understands some of the, some of the things that I want readers to know about schizophrenia and about the people that we label as schizophrenic, you know, and it, interestingly at school this year, they have a, uh, in his class, they have a social action group where the kids get to talk about something that they want to change societally. And the issue that he brought up was that we need to be kinder to people with mental illness and stop judging them because they're not dangerous. Um, because he, had, I, you know, and, it, and that to me meant that he was listening to me. And even though he can't read the book yet, he, he has a good understanding of what my, what my goal was in writing about schizophrenia and sort of breaking down all of the assumptions often false assumptions that we've had for so many decades. It's also sort of come out as being really interested in um, learning about the Korean War 
And sometimes I have misgivings about like how much I should be sharing with him because he's only nine now. And I don't know what, how much is too much to, to comprehend, but he, he's, he's really curious and he'll say, no, no, I can handle it. Please tell me. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's one of the ways I see the impact of the book on him. And I think also just in a way it bring it gives my mom a presence in his life that he wouldn't have had otherwise because she died before he was born. Right. But being able to still bring her into, into his life, I think is a, is a beautiful gift to come from this. Yeah, absolutely. And he recently, you know, said to me, it, you know, I consider my family to be, you know, and he named to the family members that he sees regularly. And he said, plus my chosen family and also your mom, even though I've never met her. That, that had to feel wonderful. Yeah, it definitely did. Yeah. Of course, you mentioning your party made me think of two things. So my, we'll get back to kind of the mental health and the schizophrenia conversation, but I was immediately struck by uh, once you said throwing kind of the launch party for your book, I was thinking of your mother's end of year school parties yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, it makes like the, the images conjured to me. I can see her in her, in her dress that she had made just for the occasion. I can see her, you know, getting people through the night so she can tempt them with the food that she craved, but still serving their needs first. Mm-hmm. Have you found yourself to have a bit of that love for a party for an event oh definitely i i used to love entertaining i mean i don't do it as much anymore but i always channeled my mom um especially when i first started what was doing that once you know there's the apartment that i write about in the book my first apartment in new york that uh that was large enough to host my mom um but i also had parties in that apartment and I just, I, I had like huge menu plans. I'd cooked all the stuff. I made multiple desserts. Sometimes I would have like a dessert tasting party. Um, nowadays, you know, like I said, my relationship to cooking has changed a little bit because it feels more laborious now. Um, sometimes, my, sometimes with my parties, I think, okay, I'm not gonna try to be my mom here with the amount of food because I don't want to compete with her and I, you know, I sometimes I think I could never actually replicate what she did because it was such a massive quantity of stuff. But then I think, oh, well, at least I want to dress up and look nice. And I do think of her, I, that exact image of her at that party in the, that glamorous dress. Um, I imagine her when I'm getting dressed and when, you know, and when I carry myself in the party as a hostess. And I think the point of the pandemic, uh, absolutely. It changed all of our relationships with, food and caring for ourselves in a lot of different ways. And now maybe it's a little bit more of, uh, I could labor over a few dishes or maybe one piece, but maybe we'll cater the rest of the evening. Right, right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you shared with readers your mother's mental health struggles, dealing with schizophrenia. Is there anything you'd like to share about mental health advice or words for families in similar positions? Yeah. I, well, I think that one of the most important things is to try to think beyond whatever psychiatry has to offer, because that's the dominant way of thinking about mental health in the U.S., is that it is often reduced to a, a prescription. Um, and that can be useful for some people, and for others it's not, or it could make things worse. Um, 
And it can be, if it is useful, it is more useful in conjunction with all of these other types of care, right? And I don't just mean individual therapy. I mean, I think that's important as well, but community health, um, you know, wellness within the family, because a, a mental illness that's so stigmatized like schizophrenia can tear families apart. And I think it was very destructive within my own family because there was a lot of disagreement about what was actually happening to my mom, what the care should be, if, if any. Um, and so I think that the family should undertake some sort of therapy together and have open and honest conversations um, and not be afraid of the stigma. Because I think the more you are um, you know, dominated by the stigma, the less you're able to care for yourself and the, the person who is experiencing the illness. And I think one of the lessons that we can learn from other cultures is that rather than look at that person with the diagnosis as the problem and the person, you know, the one that needs to change, we have to think about how we as a family adapt so that that person continues to feel welcome, to feel like they are part of this community um, and that we're not ostracizing. And so it was really heartbreaking that so many readers wrote to me after the publication of this book to tell me they had a family member who had schizophrenia. Everyone was in denial and basically banished them from the family in one way or another, sometimes physically segregating them or sometimes just, you know, um, not just not interacting with them the way that they used to. And I think another thing that I would love for readers to um, maybe follow up on if they have, if, if they're, if they have a family member with schizophrenia is to look at the idea of um, the hearing voices network. I sort of mentioned it in the book um, just ca casually, or maybe it was in a footnote, um, but it's an international organization that takes a very different approach than psychiatry does, right? So you never label the person as having schizophrenia, um, but you acknowledge that they may hear voices or see visions or have other types of perceptions that others don't. And um, they're allowed to make meaning out of that. Whereas psychiatry will say that doesn't mean anything. It's just a symptom. And we try to make it go away with medication. But what I learned through my journey with my mom is that those voices were very meaningful. You know, they, they weren't just random. Um, and so the hearing voices approach um, you know, has been found to be more helpful to a lot of people than you know, than traditional psychiatric approaches. Now, of course, for our library friends enjoying this title through Big Library Read, they have the option to borrow either the ebook or the audiobook version. What was your experience like uh, in the audiobook process? Did you help select the narrator or listen to uh, different options? I did. I was sent maybe five different narrators um, work, and I, I chose the person who I thought she did the best acting, you know, like I really liked her voice and the, and the way she was very engaging and, um, in embodying characters. Um, and, you know, my only concern was that she was not a native Korean speaker. So I sent her, she said I could send audio files of words that came up to pronounce them. Um, I mean, my Korean pronunciation probably has an American accent, but it's a little bit closer than somebody who has never spoken Korean. Um, 
so yeah, and so that was the extent of my involvement was that I chose the narrator and then I did have some conversation with her um, prior to the recording. Um, and, you know, and I also requested a couple of edits after it came out. So. Uh, what was it like to hear your story basically being told to you? It was, it was interesting because, you know, I, I didn't know how, you know, how it would have, how moving it might be for a, a listener. But there were times when I thought, oh, wow, she, she's doing such a great job of, you know, making you feel the, the emotional tension and the, you know, the various transformations. Um, yeah, but it's also a little strange <laughs> to not hear it in your own voice. Now the cover, because it's gorgeous. I mean, yeah. it's beautiful and it harkens to your mother's love of foraging. Mm-hmm. Were you involved in this process at all? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, very much so. I, uh, you know, from the very beginning, my editor asked me uh, for examples of book covers that I liked, colors that I liked, um, you know, images, things like that. So it was it was a fun assignment to sort of research other book covers and think about it. And so I sent that to her, and then the um, the designer sent me I can't remember how many different samples. Um, but yeah, this was the one that we, th- there were two that I really liked. They were very different from one another. And then I sort of crowdsourced among my friends. It's like, okay, which cover s- speaks to you more? Um, and so this was the winner. <laughs> it is, it is beautiful. I, I love the color choice as well, because it's just, I don't know. And then the, the dramatic kind of splash of blood across the front, you know, whether that's from going for those blackberries on one of your mother's very determined adventures or hearkening to the the diaspora and kind of the pain and suffering of war, I think there are yeah. so many layers to it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I was even able to <clears throat> request that some of the blood splatters go onto the berry so that it would have that ambiguity that it's, you know, it's a ripening berry, but it's also um, a blood splatter from one of these massacres during the war. Now, your book came out in 2021 and was nominated for the National Book Award. What has has it been like, you know, you've already talked about kind of sharing with your family. What has it been like to share so publicly and to see and engage with people who have read your work at these events or online? What, is, what has that been like? For the most part, it's been really amazing. Um, it just because I never anticipated that so many people would read this book. And I definitely did not imagine that it could be considered for such a prestigious award. Um, and so it really pretty much you know, changed my life because I get so many invitations to speak now or invitations for things that I didn't think that I would ever be asked to do. Um, but yeah, like it, it's really powerful to hear so many readers say that they connected to it on many levels. I mean, a lot of it is around the the mental health aspect, but also just so many people in our country who have these immigrant backgrounds, you know, not all of them Korean, many of them from other countries, but they're, you know, they can relate to their parents having experienced war or some other type of trauma that has been passed down that they don't fully talk about in the family. Right. If we don't really talk about grief, we definitely don't talk about intergenerational trauma. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I wanted to bring back up uh, Haunting the Korean Diaspora. You explored kind of the repressed history of emotional and physical violence between the U.S. and Korea. And then in Taste Like War, you continued sharing the impact of being othered or made different in small town America, especially with the comparison to the rhetoric in Korea being that this kind of prejudice doesn't exist in the States. What's next for you? And I know you talked about it a little bit, but in exploring and sharing these narratives. Yeah, I'm in the really early stages of a, of a new book project. Um, again, like my other works, it has a lot of different threads and I haven't figured out how they all work together. So I cannot give you an elevator pitch of the book at this point. But what, what I will say is that um, I am doing some archival research, looking at how, uh, how powerfully anti-communism in the US shaped this narrative of what the Korean War was as a good war that rescued South Koreans from communism. And I am, you know, juxtaposing that with what we now know actually happened during the war to try to bring the, the history to light that uh, that narrative is not so simple and it also sort of represses the truth. Because in fact, the South Korean government and the US like, or the South Korean government under the, um, in, under the authorization of the US committed so many massacres of their own civilians. Um, so that's one layer of it. And then another is sort of looking at how the division of the Korean Peninsula and all of the conflict and slaughter that came in its aftermath divided families on a mass scale and how that still reverberates today. And that, so I'm looking at that within my own family as well. Um, all of the divisions and the things that we're not allowed to talk about. So it's continuing with a lot of the same themes. Um, but yeah, so it is going to be, I think, probably a little bit more historical than Tastes Like War. Now, as we start to wind down, I love to ask just some nosy podcaster questions. Uh, what are you reading or listening to right now? Oh, so many different books at once because I'm in research mode right now. Um, so, but one book that I'm just reading for pleasure is Rachel Aviv's Strangers to Ourselves which is a book in which she um, tells this, it's narrative nonfiction. So she tells the story of four different people who had mental illness diagnoses and um, basically looks at how they come to understand them and what are the stories that we tell around mental illness. Um, it's really good, very interesting. Um, I'm reading a couple of historical novels that deal with the the massacre, the 1948 massacre in Jeju Island, which is a you know it's a southern island province um, in in Korea, in which at least 30,000 people were massacred by South Korean police because they were um, considered to be too leftist or associated with someone who was a leftist, and that for and there was a terror campaign that lasted until 1954 to hunt them down, and that for another like. 40 or 50 years, they were not allowed to talk about what happened or grieve their loved ones if they survived that massacre. Um, and so, you know, this is what I'm talking about with those repressed histories. So this, I'm reading these as part of my research. Um, you know, one is a novel in translation, Sunich Samchon, and another is Lisa C's The Island of Sea Women. When I say public library, what comes to mind? Oh, I think of 
resources for children and families. <laughs> That's the first thing that comes to mind because, because I have a child who uses the public library. Um, I mean, when I was growing up, I don't think I went to, we had one public library in my small town and I don't think I went to it that often. So I didn't have a full appreciation of public libraries then. Um, but now, I mean, being in New York City, New York Public Library and Brooklyn Public Library, there are just so many events and programs at, you know, at any given time, you know, you can find something to do at the library. And my, my son absolutely loves it. But, you know, of course, I also think about how libraries are, are under attack. Um, I think because of the vital resources that they provide and the kind of knowledge that they promote, that some people are afraid of, you know, that they don't want children to learn the truth about many different histories or about uh, the experiences of groups of people that maybe some, you know, some parts of our society want to keep marginalized. And so, you know, I think of it in both of those ways. If you are going out to eat, what meal are you looking for on the menu or judging the restaurant by? Oh, um, well, I, I am biased towards rice. <laughs> so I'm usually, you know, I'm usually looking, I, I gravitate towards Asian restaurants, towards rice dishes and Asian food. Um, so a rice bowl, like there's a Japanese restaurant in my neighborhood that does an amazing rice bowl because the rice is so well seasoned and perfectly cooked which a lot of places get wrong, you know? I think it would be something really simple to make good rice, but you know, there is actually some technique involved. <laughs> if, it's, if it's not an Asian restaurant, and since I'm vegetarian, I often will go for the veggie burger. And I've had a lot of sort of, you know, not so good veggie burgers that either are flavorless or they fall apart while you're eating them. Yep. <laughs> a veggie burger is a great thing to judge a restaurant yeah. by. It is either, it, it, they fall into the camp of like, not worth eating or one of the greatest veggie burgers you've had. Yeah. It's very rare to find right. an in-between like, yeah, that was fine. Like it was, it was great or it was bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now, before I let you go, where can the listeners find you online? So I'm on Twitter. Um, I have a website, gracemcho.com. And my partner has an Instagram live event today. I'm not on Instagram, but I think I'm going to create an account just so I can watch it. <laughs> So maybe you can find me on Instagram in the near future, or maybe I'll just be one of those people who lurk on Instagram just so I can take part in these other events. Grace, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and to share more about Taste Like War. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been such a nice interviewer. Listeners, remember you can borrow the ebook and audiobook version of Taste Like War globally from May 3rd through the 17th with no wait lists or holds directly from your library's Overdrive collection through the Libby app. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast and happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com or in Libby. Our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.